0: How often do you come across the phenomenon of virtue signalling? Virtue signalling, do you know what that is? When people are led to do an act of kindness, uh, maybe give generously to a charitable cause, maybe help some homeless person in the streets, but rather than just go through that act of kindness or generosity, they then have to take a picture and stick it on social media so that many, many other people can see how wonderful they are. Virtue signalling. Why is it that people do this sort of thing? I think it would be a little bit cynical to say they only have in mind their own praise and glory. I'm sure people do do kind things because they want to be kind to others that they meet. But certainly there is there a motive that alongside the motive to be kind, alongside the motive to do what is right, there is a desire to get praise from other people. A desire to be recognised as somebody who is good, as someone who is worthwhile as someone that people look up to. Now unfortunately, Christianity, or in fact any religion in general, is not immune to this phenomenon of virtue signalling. We're not always led purely by a desire to do what is right, or to honour God. Sometimes we are driven by a desire to be seen by us, to be recognised, to be loved and honoured and respected. What does Jesus make of such religion? What does Jesus make of Christianity that is designed around those motives? Well today, in the passage that we read, Jesus encounters a group of Pharisees, leaders, teachers of the law, who have those sorts of motives. Only their motives are not alongside a desire to do what is right. Their motive seems to be the sole Uh, The sole thing that's pushing them. All they're acting for is to get reputation and honour and praise from other people. Let's have a look to see how Jesus responds to those people and about the remedy that he offers in the light of it. Now, for the last few weeks, you'll remember, if you've been with us, uh, that we've been going through these sections of uh, Luke's Gospel and we've been seeing that Jesus is on a journey towards Jerusalem. And remember that back in chapter 18, Jesus warned his disciples as he was approaching Jerusalem, Jesus warned them of the fate that he was going to experience. He warned them about what would happen to him. He warned them that he was about to be betrayed. He was about to be rejected. He was about to be tortured and beaten up and eventually killed. Jesus knows what is waiting for him at Jerusalem. All these things are part of the prophecies that God had made about the Son of Man. And last week we heard about how Jesus approaches Jerusalem and just before he enters the city, he stops and he weeps for the city. He weeps for the people in the city. He weeps with compassion. These people in this city, the people who are about to put him to death, the people who are about to reject him, Jesus weeps for them. And in his weeping and in his lament for the people of Jerusalem, Jesus says they've not recognised the time of God's coming to them. There's an opportunity for these people to receive peace, and yet they are going to respond with violence. And so Jesus weeps for them for what what these people have lost. Jesus weeps because these people have not recognised God's coming. Jesus weeps because these people have not recognised who he really is. Now why haven't they recognised? Why haven't the Jews realised who Jesus really is? Is it because the evidence has been hidden? Is it because Jesus has done all his miracles behind closed doors? Is it because he's been very subtle in the way that he's been teaching to other people? Oh no, not at all. As we've read through Luke, we've seen his miracles are done in front of crowds. His teaching is done in the open. He's got tens, hundreds of people following him round day by day, hanging on every word that he says. He's not holding back the evidence. And actually, when you look at the crowds and and the way that Jesus responds to people, there have been individuals who have recognised Jesus. It's not everybody who's rejected him. We saw Zacchaeus a few weeks ago. We heard about the disciples last week who recognised Jesus as the son of David. We we heard about the the blind beggar who knew who Jesus was. Some individuals see the evidence and realise who Jesus is and respond to him rightly. But for the nation as a whole, the general response is one of blindness and ignorance and rejection. What's going on there? What's preventing the nation from accepting Jesus? There's something systematic that's holding them back from seeing the evidence that He's there in front of them. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he makes straight for the temple, verse 45. Then he entered the temple area. Now the temple in Jerusalem was the heart of the Jewish religion. And I don't just mean the heart of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish religion, full stop. Every Jew, whether they lived in Jerusalem or in any of the other cities, wherever they lived in the country, wherever they lived actually in the world, every Jew had an obligation to return to this temple in Jerusalem three times a year. It was the place where Jews, the only place where Jews could come to make sacrifices to deal with their sin. It was the centre of Jewish worship and of Jewish religion. And when Jesus arrives there, he does something really quite shocking. Luke tells us, he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. Now the other Gospels, the other parts of the Bible, give us a little bit more detail as to just how Jesus did that. John, for example, tells us that he made a whip out of cords and entered the the temple using this whip to drive out the sellers. He released the animals that were being sold, the doves, the cattle. Uh, And so you you can imagine this this temple area, this outer courtyard, with with animals now roaming and running everywhere, flying all around. Uh, Jesus uh, driving people out with his whip. Uh, Money being scattered across the floor. And of course, businessmen trying to scrabble around to pick up the coins that they're losing. Tables are overturned, and amidst this carnage that Jesus makes in the temple area, he's shouting to the people, he's telling them why he's doing this, and he says, verse 46, It is written, my house will be a house of prayer. This is God's proclamation for what his temple should be. When God gave you the instruction to build this temple, his design was that it should be a house of prayer. It should be a place where people come in repentance, in confession, in worship, and in praise, and in thanksgiving. And what have you turned it into? Jesus says to the crowds. You've turned it into a den of robbers. A den of robbers. Now understand this. All that that buying and selling that was going on in the temple area, actually, God's word... Uh, That was a necessary part of of the worship. You can imagine people from all over the country coming to the temple in order to make a sacrifice. Well, where are they going to get their animal from? Especially if they've had to walk for days or weeks in order to get to the temple. And so it was important that there was opportunity for worshippers to be able to procure the animal that they would then sacrifice. Additionally, God had said that all the worshippers need to pay a temple tax for the upkeep of the temple. Just a small amount that each worshipper had to pay in order for the temple to run. And that payment had to be made in a a certain currency. And not everybody had access to that currency. So it was important that when the worshippers came, there needed to be opportunity for them to change their money, get the currency in order to pay the temple tax. Now because these things are part of God's word, a requirement for worship, we can safely assume that Jesus is not just angry at the fact that this buying and selling is going on. Is not just angry that people are selling within the temple. What he's angry at is the way that the leaders, the the Pharisees, the the, the chief priests, those who are in control of this buying and selling have distorted it, have used it to line their own pockets. They've made this a commercial exercise. They've made it profit-driven. It's now all about themselves and how much gain they can get from this act of worship that people are obliged to do. Jesus is angry that the religion of the Jews, under the guidance and control of the leaders, has become far less about worshipping God than it is about turning a healthy prophet. Their religion was centred on themselves rather than centred on real worship of God. Now, we've got to ask ourselves the question. What would Jesus make of your religion? Is your religion, is your faith, are your acts of service centred on self, for your own benefit, or are they truly an act of worship to God? Are you part of the church in order to serve Christ, in order to worship Christ, God, in order to be part of the representation of Christ here on earth? Or are you part of the church family here because well, it's nice to be part of a social group. There are others here like you. It's a really good place for making friends. Is your church attendance for yourself or is it for God? Do you study God's word in order to live faithfully, in order to respond to it? in order to live out the instructions that Jesus gives us? Or do you study God's word in order to fill your mind with knowledge, to be able to answer the questions and the objections of the people in the towns and the streets that you meet, in order to be known as someone who has the right answers, who is trustworthy, who knows how to argue? Do you serve in the church? Are you part of the rotors and the ministry teams in order to be recognised as someone reliable and trustworthy and able Or do you do it really, truly in order to serve others, in order to serve God and to glorify Him? What about even the way you share the Gospel? Do you speak to your families and friends and your colleagues? Do you speak to them because you love them and you want them to know Christ? Or do you speak to them because, because you want the recognition of being an evangelist? of being that that sort of person in the church who who speaks to many, many people? Do you speak because you want recognition for yourself or to honour Christ? You know, in all these ways and more, a person might outwardly seem to be doing the right things. They might outwardly be doing the things that God commands. And yet, when those things become the focus of our attention, it's a sign that our motivation is perhaps... No longer to serve God, but to serve ourselves. You know, Jesus calls us to a type of religion that is not about profit, it's not about praise, it's not about reputation or power. He calls you to faith, to a relationship with God your Father, and Christ as your King, as your Lord, as we were hearing earlier. How do you think the leaders of the temple reacted to Jesus' uh, amazing acts? It's never easy to be told that you're wrong, is it? And in the way Luke writes his gospel, this is the moment, really, that the, the, the tension between the Pharisees and the leaders and, and Jesus, this is the moment that the tension comes to a head. Uh, the leaders decide, right, we're, we're no longer on about talking about how we can silence this man. We've now got to totally get rid of him. And so verse 47, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people, they're now trying to kill him. They want him dead. They want him gone. You can see something of their motive for killing Jesus in verse 48. They can't just go and take Jesus away and, uh, uh, and kill him. Why not? Yet, verse 48, they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. It tells you a lot about these leaders. If they really were concerned that Jesus was teaching a dangerous doctrine or doing dangerous things or leading people away from the true faith, then they would have every right and every responsibility to act decisively, to get rid of him. But these, the motive that's driving these leaders is not to do what is right. It's not to protect the faith and to honour God. The motive that's driving them is What will people think of us? And we don't want to act now because people might not like it. And if the people don't like it, the people might not like us. And so they've got to come up with some way of getting rid of Jesus without upsetting the crowds. They've got to think of some way of getting rid of Jesus with the crowds on their side. So they come up with a question. Two questions, in fact. Uh, Verse 2. They come to Jesus and they ask him, Tell us, by what authority, what authority have you to do these things? These things. What authority have you to drive out the sellers from the temple? What authority have you to accept the worship that people are giving you? What authority have you to give these new teachings? What authority have you? And more to the point, who gave you this authority? That's the question that these leaders present to Jesus. But Jesus responds with a question of his own, verse 3. I will also ask you a question. You tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? Do you remember John the Baptist? Uh, it's probably years really since we looked at Luke, the, the, the opening chapters of Luke here at Holywell. Um, but John the Baptist was a prophet who was preaching just before Jesus started his ministry? And John's message was he was calling people to to, to real, heartfelt worship and uh, worship of God, and a life that that lived out that faith in God. He was calling people to repent of sin. He was calling people out of a religion that was just purely a cultural thing. You know, you're a Jew because your friends and families and the people around you are Jews. No, no, that should not be the reason that you serve God. John was calling people to a different type of serving God. Uh, uh, Serving God with your whole life, heartfelt. He said, repent of your sins and live for God in every way you can. And as you do, be baptised. Be baptised as a symbol of this change that you're committing to. That's what John the Baptist was doing. And at times, John the Baptist was particularly critical of the religious leaders of the time. Uh, Just like Jesus has done at the temple area, John saw the religious leaders as being part of the reason that people's religion was insincere, let's say. So, Jesus asks, John's baptism, and John's message that goes with it, was that from heaven? Was he really speaking God's message? Or was it from men? Had he just made it up himself? Was it him and his friends who decided that things weren't good enough? You tell me, Jesus says. Was John preaching God's message or was he preaching his own message? Now notice this. Jesus hasn't dodged the question. Uh, They brought him a question of authority. Jesus hasn't just sidestepped it. Actually what Jesus has done is he's raised the stakes. By asking them this question about John the Baptist, Jesus is implying Whatever answer you give me about the John the Baptist, the answer is also true of me. But he makes it so that he doesn't have to give the answer, it's the the people who are questioning him. They have to give the answer. And so the egg might land on their face, so to speak. But the Pharisees wouldn't answer. Verse 5. If we say it was from heaven, then he will ask, why didn't you believe him? If we say that John's message was from heaven, Jesus will ask, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you turn from sin? Why didn't you change the way that you do your religion? So we can't say, whatever we say, we cannot say that John was from heaven. But equally, if we say that John's message was from men, well, here comes that motive of the leaders again. If we say it was from men, well, all the people, they're convinced that it was from heaven. They're convinced that John was a prophet of God. And so they fear for their own reputation. They fear, actually, for their own lives. If they say that John's message was from men. And so they can't answer. They have to say, I don't know. Do you see the contrast between the two sides of this discussion? That's really what Luke wants you to see in this little uh, episode. He wants you to see the stark difference between the two sides of this argument. On the one side you've got the religious leaders. A group of men who are desperate for the praise and admiration and love and respect of the people. They would do anything for people to look up to them and to honour them and to listen to what they say. Their motives are focused only on keeping their position of influence in society. They strive so hard to achieve it, and yet what do they get? They get condemnation from the prophets and derision and rejection by the people. That's one side of the argument. And the other side, you have Jesus. How does he act? Jesus is the man who welcomes the outcast. He spends time with the tax collector and the sinner, like Zacchaeus. He stops his journey to spend time with the blind beggar, the good for nothing. He welcomes little children into his presence and speaks to them with as much respect and honour as he speaks to others. Jesus doesn't seek the admiration of people. He's the king who rides on a donkey. And yet, he's the one on whom the crowd hangs on his every word. Do you see the difference between these two sides? Genuine Jesus and the phony Pharisees. And now you can see that the Pharisees questioned to Jesus that question about authority. Well, it was never really a question about authority at all. They weren't interested in the answer. Even if Jesus had been plain and straight with them and given them the answer about where his authority did come from, they wouldn't have responded right to it. They're not really interested in what he says. They're only asking him in order to trap him. Their question was not for the purpose of finding out. Their question was for the purpose of trying to hold on to their own comfortable positions of authority. They only wanted an answer that would affirm their current status. How do you react when the teaching of Jesus challenges or instructs you to make a radical change in your life. When Jesus tells you to love your enemy, yes, your enemy, it's one thing to love your friends and your family, it's one thing even to love the neighbour who is perhaps indifferent to you. But when Jesus calls you to love your enemy, the person who has hurt you and continues to hurt and offend you, Jesus calls you to forgive them. To love them, to care for them, to seek what is best for them. How do you respond? Do you shrug it off as too difficult to do? Do you ignore it? Bury it in the back of your Bible and, and, and turn to another page quickly? find something that you can live up to? Or do you seek to follow Jesus as example? Do you seek to follow Jesus' example? What do you make of Jesus' call to repent of sin? Perhaps sexual sin in your life. Perhaps pride. Perhaps greed. Greed of money or greed of food or other things. Are you willing to to give up those things that your life has been built around for so long? Are you willing to give up those things that your life has been built upon? Or do you find that a cost that is just too much to pay? Do you close your ears to those parts of the Bible? They're old-fashioned. They're old-hat. They've no relevance for the 21st century, you say to yourself. And wait for some other teaching that makes you feel good about the situation that you're in. How do you respond when Jesus instructs you or challenges you? You know, those who look to Jesus who are only finding answers that favour and support their current way of life, those people are in danger of being just like these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Their religion is hypocrisy. It is phony. It is empty. It is worthless. And if you're coming to Jesus for the first time this morning, if you're just considering who he is and, and what this Christianity thing is all about, then you ought to be aware that Jesus does not present himself as, as a kind of lucky charm for you to carry alongside all the other gods of your life. Jesus presents himself as the King, as Lord. And at times the challenge and call upon you and your life will be perhaps far more than you ever considered, uh, far more costly than you might ever have imagined. Are you listening to Jesus carefully and intently, ready to do what he calls you to do? Ready to respond in appropriate ways? Or are you only listening for things that affirm and confirm your current way of living? Now if you're a Christian this morning, and if you are in any way sensitive to the challenge of God's word, which we rightly should be, then perhaps you found this morning's message quite difficult to stomach? Which of us hasn't found that at times our motives are distorted? Our service in the church is for selfish reasons. Which of us hasn't ever found ourselves to be the centre of our own religion? Who can say that our motives are always pure? Who hasn't allowed that sinful habit to remain just a few more days or to put off dealing with it? Because it's just too costly to do. What hope is there of change for us? What is the answer in dealing with this hypocrisy of our hearts? Well, Luke wants you to see two things. See, see the difference between the way Jesus acts and the way the Pharisees act. You see, Jesus isn't in, is not in competition with these Pharisees. Jesus is not trying to put down the Pharisees so that he can exalt himself. He's not just trying to replace whatever they had with a message of his own. It's not a competition here for who can get the most followers and who can get the most admiration. Jesus does have the admiration of the crowds, but it's not because he's competing with it. It's not because he's grasping for it. Jesus is not setting himself up as as, as a different type of religion than than what the... uh, uh, just a different model of religion than, than... as to what the Pharisees were offering. Jesus has a totally different priority. Jesus' priority is to teach you truth, what really is right. And he's willing to risk his own reputation in order to get that message across. And secondly, Jesus isn't out just to expose the failure of the Pharisees. He's not just putting them down. He's also here to put things right. He didn't just tell people that their religion was empty, he drove out the abuses in the temple. And the way that Luke writes this narrative, he wants you to see that that Jesus has absolute power over this situation. He's got total control of what's going on here. Because Jesus, throughout these sections, is achieving his own purposes. He's got power to achieve his own purposes. He's here to do something entirely genuine. Recall, in verse 47, we were told that these leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus. And that desire of the leaders will dominate all of this chapter and into the next chapters. The leaders want to get rid of Jesus. They want to eliminate him. And in verse 2, they bring this question that really backs Jesus into a corner. Whatever answer Jesus gives to the question in verse 2, he's trapped. The implication is, we are the ones who have authority over the temple and we didn't give you the authority. So whatever answer you give is reason enough for us to get rid of you. Jesus is trapped. But Jesus isn't phased. Remember? Jesus had already told his disciples of the rejection and the abuse and the torture that he was about to face when he got to Jerusalem. And here, just as it looks like Jesus has backed into a corner, Jesus' actions show us, no, no, no. It's not time for Jesus to go just yet. Jesus has got more to do. Jesus is in total control of the situation. And with the greatest wisdom, he gives them back this, other, this question that frees him from the situation. And so he escapes their trap. Now, amazingly, Within this chapter, verse 41 of chapter 20, Jesus himself will then bring up this question of authority again. He will bring it up. He will raise the issue. He's like a he's like a matador with his red rag, waving it at the bull, offering them a chance to attack. And just as they're close, he whips it away. It's not time yet. And when Jesus finally is arrested and put on trial, it's the same question again. That the leaders bring to him. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Are you claiming to act with the authority of God? And at that time, Jesus says, look, if I told you the answer, you would never have listened. But now is the time. Yes, it is as you say. And just when Jesus knows that it's the right time, when Jesus is ready, He allows the Pharisees, the leaders, the chief priests, to take him and kill him. Because his own death is the central part of his purpose. Jesus' own death and rejection and betrayal and torture and beating is the central part of his purpose in what he's trying to do, what he's trying to achieve. Why is that? Because in his death, Jesus is acting as a representative of the people. Jesus suffers the death that sin deserves. Not his own sin, because he has none. He suffers the the death that our sin deserves. That the sin of even these Pharisees deserves. And by suffering that death, he frees his people from the control of sin. He frees them from the slavery to sin. And Jesus didn't just stay dead. He didn't just die and remain in the tomb. He was raised to new life. A new type of life. An eternal life. A life in the Spirit. And the life that Jesus has been raised to, he now offers to all of his people on whom he he acted as a representative. That's why Jesus came not to wrap you up and and tie you down in in another system of, of laws and rules and instructions that you never have any hope of being able to keep. He came in order to die on your behalf, to set you free from the sin that traps you and controls you, and to give you the gift, the free gift, the free offer of eternal life. If you feel the weight of sin in your life, if you feel the darkness and the damage that it does to yourself and to those around you, if you understand the offence it is to God, your creator, and the ransom it has on you, there is only one way to escape. It's not by building up a list of rules for you to keep. It's not by hiding your sin and pretending that you're really good, and pretending that you've got all the answers, and pretending that you're something worthwhile, It's not about making a new system of laws that's possible for you to keep. It's not about putting other people down. The only way to escape from sin is to come to Jesus, to confess your sin, to say, I can't, I'm unable, I am unworthy. And to receive eternal life as a gift. A gift that will last for all of eternity. A gift of forgiveness. A gift of freedom. A gift of... Peace. And in that way, Jesus begins the work of changing you. He changed Zacchaeus, who was freed from his love of money and then went on to give it away to share it with others. He changed the Apostle Paul, who used to be one of these Pharisees, until he met Jesus and his life was radically changed. And he can change you if you come to him, confess your sin. And receive the free gift of eternal life. I'm going to pray. I'd invite you to pray with me. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father. We confess that so often our motives in our worship and our service of you. Are just like those motives of the Pharisees. We're seeking our own glory. We're seeking our own fame and reputation. We serve in order to serve ourselves rather than serving you or your people. We confess our sin. And Father God, we ask that you would do this work of changing our hearts. Work in us by your Spirit. Help us not to try and build up a reputation for ourselves. Help us not to try and convince ourselves and others, even try and convince you of our purity, of our goodness. But give us the confidence to come to you in confession, recognising our own weakness, recognising our failures, and as we do, receiving the free gift of forgiveness, joy, peace and eternal life by what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf as our representative. Father, I pray that your spirit would open blind eyes to see sin, perhaps for the first time this morning, for people to see their need of a saviour, to see their need of forgiveness. And for those of us who have the Spirit working in us, we commit ourselves to you again and ask that you would help us more wholeheartedly to serve you and love you in every way and that you would continue this work that you've started in us, changing us, making us more like Christ, our saviour. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.